Welcome to episode 9 of the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined once again by Dave Parker. Hi Tony, how are you doing? It's good that you're actually, you're in the country this time, you're actually in the UK with us today. I am, I'm uh, at home in Suffolk, so I'm only uh, (laughs) a couple of hundred miles away instead of a couple of thousand miles so you're not you're not recording this at a sort of like ungodly time in the morning this time either. No, no. Well, <laughs> half past eight at night still feels a little bit odd, but I think I'm just about <laughs> over the jelly. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, glad we've got you here with us today. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative Forty K and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. Finally, if you do want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Links to all of these are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And I managed to do that in one for once. <laughs> you did. Well done. It's almost like I'm getting used to the intro to our own show. That's right. It's a good <laughs> job that we don't broadcast the outtakes, so they'd have to listen to you saying that over and over again. Like oh, they, Tony. <laughs> they sometimes get to hear to that over on Chronicles. Like, Tom likes putting some of our outtakes in that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so tonight, uh, we've actually both got our own copies of Psychic Awakening Book 1, the Phoenix Rising book. So we're going to have a bit of a rundown for that, really, because it, well, it was a book that both you and me wanted to pick up. Um, like, obviously, we don't, we don't in any way get review copies yet. Uh, no, no, not at all. Like, that's, that's the aim one day. So for now, we've, we've shelled out for our own books, but I, I mean, I'm not disappointed. It's a book that I, I wanted to get and was really excited about it. So. No, no, it's, I completely agree. It's something I picked up as soon as I could last weekend. And um, yeah, I've enjoyed reading it so far, but I'm sure we'll get into that later. Yeah, same. Like, I just finished reading the um, like the fluff in it today, and there's some really good sort of narrative stuff in there. It's really cool. But I think we're gonna we're gonna take a closer look at the lore in it next episode because I'd really like to do a couple lore focused episode for once on the you know narrative wargamer podcast. <laughs> Actually, talk about the narrative. Um, Is this an opportunity to invite anybody to get in touch who wants to talk about Eldar lore? Oh, definitely. Yeah, especially if there's any um, resident Unari experts because. The events of Phoenix Rising kind of like pick up the Yanari storyline with sort of like with what um, Yvrain's been up to kind of like after resurrecting Gulliman and so on. So if anyone's got any um, previous knowledge of the Yanari stuff, it'd be great to hear from you and possibly get you on the show for that episode. But um, tonight, I think, say, I think the other thing to say before you move on, Tony, is if we're going to talk about Yanari, at some point we're going to say, they're all dead, Dave. Or at least they want to be dead, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So let's just get that one out of the system. And uh, um, but yeah, tonight we are going to have a, a sort of look through some of the, the rules in the book, really. And I know there's um, like various other podcasts and YouTubers and stuff that'll be looking in depth at what these things mean for match play and all the rest of it. Um, but really, that's not what we're going to be doing. We're going to be having a look at some of the 
just some of the more interesting aspects and some of the more narrative stuff. Like there's two new battle zones in here that I want to touch on. And a few other interesting implications for future releases and the future of the Psychic Awakening range. So all very mysterious and interesting, but we'll, we will get into that later on in our main topic. Yep. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, and then we've actually got a fair few things to discuss in the news and new releases segment uh, this week as well, because there's basically a lot of new things out, and even the first sort of like hints and teasers for the next book in the Psychic Awakening series. And I mean, I was expecting to try and keep up with this series, maybe, and get all the books. But if they're going to be releasing books like every month. I don't know how feasible it's going to be because that is going to be a lot of books to buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's difficult enough with keeping up with the Games Workshop content hoes at the best of times, but when it's uh, content that you want to buy into, that makes it doubly hard. Sorry, I was going to say that it's uh, looking like that this is going to be associated with a Sisters release, I think, coming up next month, right? Uh, well, there's a few different factions involved. I've got them listed out later, and we can speculate on that. But for now, I think... We will move on to the paint station garrison because that's pretty much a good little rundown of what we're going to talk about in the show. So we will start, as we always do, with what we've been up to and what we're currently working on and generally things going on in our hobby lives. So we will see you all back here in a minute, guys. And we're back, guys. So we are now diving into the paint station garrison and... To be honest, there's been all sorts sort of going on recently for me, so I've not actually got as much done as I would typically do. Um, it's actually this weekend; it's my uh, it's my daughter's first birthday, so we've been getting busy with that all week, really. You know, getting ready for that, which is going to be awesome and great, and I'm really looking forward to it. But it does mean I've not had as much hobby time in the past week. So really, um, since the weekend, I've not had a chance to do much. Yeah, I know how that feels. I'm, I'm a little bit shorter. I've got a, well, at least maybe a touch longer than yours, but um, I've been very busy since I got yeah. back from India. We were working software and we've got a very big release coming out, so I've been doing some extra hours. And, and then my in-laws are visiting this week, so they're downstairs while we record now. Uh, and my kids are off school on half past uh, half term. Um, so uh, I've been doing short about that, time yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, no she's only one then. Yeah. <laughs> But it's yeah. uh, it's not a parenting podcast, so let's go back to 40k. Yeah. <laughs> what have you been painting, Tony? Well, basically, I was working on getting my Necromunda gang finished for the event that I played in at the weekend. So all last week and well, pretty much two weeks previous to that, I spent working on um, the gangers I needed to get ready for the event because I wanted to take an entirely painted gang because... It was just a goal I wanted to achieve. Really. Like I didn't, didn't have to actually have a fully painted gang for the event. But it was just something I wanted to do, and it looked really nice. And I'm glad I did. Um, yeah, it is really good when you if you go into a tournament. I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it later. But to take a fully painted army squad, whatever it is, uh, the force that you take it with you. Mm. Uh, I think I've mentioned in the past we've run uh, a bolt action tournament uh, in in Cambridge, a World War Two event, and and the last one we did, we had 96 players, and every single person bought a painted army. I know, it was just absolutely fantastic to see so many painted armies on the table for the day uh, across the games, and uh, I hope you had an equally good experience at, at your tournament. Oh, it was excellent, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about it a bit more in the games played later on, but the thing that's really nice with my Escher gang now is that they're at that point where 
I, I own 30 Escher models built up and I now have 19 of them painted. Um, so I kind of have the core of any form of gang list painted. So if I ever want to go to an event or even just like an event day, yeah, a friends or something, um, and I can write out a gang list, it, chances are probably all, but maybe one or two of those models in that list will be painted. So then yeah. I can just get the unpainted ones ready for that day. So just half a week to prepare for the next tournament. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's say I, I was kind of, I reckon I spent about, 10, I probably spent about 20 hours working on these four Escher gangers in total. Um, okay. And that's having, I say, like 19 models in now. I've kind of got my scheme down, but it is a very like intricate and involved scheme. Like there's lots of different color patternings and blendings and animal prints and hair dyes, dials and gold filigree guns and all sorts. There's like loads of it. <laughs> Sounds like the level of detail that make that Madonna proud. Yeah. Well, that's the point. It's Necromunda. I don't have a ton of models. Like the entire event, I, you, I took a gang of 11 models and right. like the event pack was restricting gang size to between eight and 12 gangers. So, you know, at most you're going to be taking 12 gangers of you. Yeah. So when it's sort of that scale of game, you can lavish that sort of attention on the individuals and make sure that they all look their best. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been I play in, uh, at least one Blood Bowl tournament a year. With my Blood Bowl teams, they tend to get a little bit more attention than, than some of the rank and file troops for the, the larger mass battle games I play. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, they were all done. I got them all finished in time for the event. It was actually like, um, it wasn't the night before, but it was, I think it was like two days before the event that I got um, the last bit finished on the last ganger. Well, I had oh, that's, that's, that's the comfortable level. I've certainly been in a position of varnishing miniatures in the hotel room, bathroom the night before. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been there in the past. Uh, I once pulled an all-nighter at a friend's um, getting my Drukari ready for an event at the time. Yeah. The sort of yeah, you push on edge, gives you a bit of adrenaline, right? Yeah, the sort of level of speed painting where the next day you're still finding stray brush hairs that have made it off your brush and onto your models. It's been drying when you've been doing frantic dry brushing. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that's an experience uh, for uh, mm. our listeners who have played in tournaments. It's a familiar experience. So after a rather intense sort of like two weeks of using all my hobby time to do very like frantic but also very detailed work um i just took a bit of a break this week that's not i'm not really going to do much painting um because my head's been so sort of stuck in it for the past two weeks I just wanted to clear the air a little bit um so what other little bits i have done have been sort of like working on terrain pieces really um okay and even that's not been anything intense. Um, I've finally got round to putting the first bit of paint on the Shardrak spines that I've got for the Death Ward board. So that's the, the sort of like spiky, um, rocky outcrops. Have you seen those? Um, yes, I have. Yeah, they look yeah. quite nice. Did you post some photos of the, you've not posted photos yet on Facebook group of where you are with those yet? No, not yet. Cause I've just got basically the base 
dry brushing layer down because I wanted to do a really nice gentle dry brush fade on them. So they go from sort of like dark green root to sort of like a lighter, more fluorescent, like bioluminescent green on the tips. Right. Right. Um, cause I want to try and keep them a little bit universal so that I can use them either on a 40k table, like on the death world pod, or I can use them in Necromunda and use okay. things like, um, gassed, um, uh, crop or growths or whatever, you know, like the sort of things you find in the bad zones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think they'd look out of place on a sort of like a demon escort either or something a bit ethereal. So yeah, I'm looking for, I'm enjoying them. Um, and then really the only other thing is, uh, I've been working on a little bit of salvage work from the Temple of Skulls that I picked up from eBay the other week. Because that was not in the most cared after condition when I got hold of it. Um, but it's a nice scenic piece. Is it structurally sound? Is it? Yes, you're able that's to the thing. It? Yes, it is structurally sound. It's not been damaged or anything. It's just been haphazardly thrown together. Got random spots of um, like tufts of grass and gravel that just are dotted all over the place. Um, bits were mounted in the wrong places, but not in any way that they were damaged. Um, and it's clearly been left in a cupboard or on a shelf for years because it's had a, a fine layer of dust and uh, other just detritus that's kind of accumulated in like the eye sockets of the skulls and stuff and yeah. between the rocks. So yeah. I've had fun chiseling the sections apart, like actually using a, like a, a wood file to try and get the skulls to pop off the base of the temple so that I can clean them up and put them on the correct ones because they were all on the yeah. wrong ones. Then the skulls weren't aligning. Properly. Uh, then I've been sanding down all the points of contact and cleaning them up and uh, stripping some paint off it in places. <laughs> and then the uh, the most entertaining thing that I had to do while trying to sort of restore it was I had to give it a bath. Yeah, uh, when you've got that kind of ingrained muck, uh, soap and water really does uh, bring uh, recovery models like that that you picked up second-hand uh, up a tree. I've done that and, more than once. Yeah, and obviously this thing's big. Like, it's bigger than my my physical actual paint station. Um, right. So I just have to work on it on, like, a big you know, hobby cutting mat. So it's not like I just had a Tupperware tub big enough to submerge it in. <laughs> No, no, it properly needs a bath. I understand. Yeah, it literally needed a bath. <laughs> Went in the bathtub, got the shower head out, rinsed it down, let it dry out, and now there there is no more fine layer of dust on it. <laughs> so I'll probably glue it all back together again later this week and get it undercoated, and I'm going to start painting it up, and it's going to be great. Um, I'm going to paint all the like the stonework on it up as like black marble, so it's going to look really nice. Um, and otherwise, right now, I'm literally just painting in the first layers on the latest uh, Death World Forest piece. Okay. So just filling in the the orange uh, canopy on the tree line, because I always have to do this bit first, because it's impossible to not flip the paint onto other parts of it. So if I do this as the first layer, then it doesn't matter if I end up splashing orange paint on other bits of it, because it's going to get covered. Yeah, that's something I always do when I'm painting. So to start from the inside out, uh, get as deep down the skin, or even you know, on a zombie, even deeper than the skin, and then then work up through the layers, the clothes, any armor on top of that, etc. 
that's what I traditionally do, and that's what I did with um, the first time I painted one of these Death Worlds. But the trouble is that the canopy on the forest heads is what you would call the outermost layer because okay. it's right on top. So you've got like, the tree trunk and the vines and the spines and everything else is like under it because the big canopy is the piece on top. But the trouble is the canopy is one of these things that's kind of like working on a, a plastic mesh piece because it's just full of holes because it's meant to just be the way that the like the yeah, leaving no, effect is created. Yeah. So the trouble is no matter how I apply paint via a brush onto that, it just flicks little bits of paint all the time. And okay. then inevitably I ended up with these orange um like paint flickers on everything else I'd already painted, so I had to tidy it up on the first one I did. So everyone I've done since, I make sure that I actually do the canopy layer first, because it doesn't matter if I flick orange paint over the leaves and the trunk and the branches, because they're going to get painted at a later stage. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, that is that is my paint station garrison, and um, no doubt next week I'll probably be picking up on the Orc Boys that I've sort of shell for a week or two while I had to get the ashes ready for the event. So they'll be coming back out. Yeah, no, what have you been up to then? I've, uh, well, as we're talking right now, I'm picking out the uh, never-ending gold edging on Black Legion. <laughs> um, so I've, uh, uh, I, I suppose these are working progress items. I've, I've really started into my Black Legion force. Um, so I've, uh, I'm, I'm working on the eighth of uh, um, eight uh, berserkers, uh, which are mostly red, but with black shoulder pads and helmets. Um, and then just the huge amounts of gold detailing uh, that, that is normal for Black Legion. I've got um, five Terminators that I made a little bit more progress on. I think I mentioned them last time. I'm slowly working through their gold detailing as well. And, um, I've started on a squad of nine uh, Death Legion uh, Chaos Bikes. They're the old uh, single pose Chaos Bikes, really. I, I guess there's not a new kit out for those yet. Uh, but yet. I, I, I quite like them. They, they've been around for a while. Well, Some people have you, a bit monopose. But... What have you built the Berserkers out of? Uh, so this is uh, one of the more modern kits. Uh, it's the, specifically the Berserker kit. Uh, so just lots of... Uh, bolt pistols, chain swords, a couple of chain axes, and but it's the it's the current production range yeah. will eat Yeah, that's right. There is, I think, now the oldest space plastic space marine kit in the range that they produce. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're okay. They're coming out okay. Uh, oh. Just, uh, just this gold is uh, driving me a little bit insane. Mm. <laughs> I know one of the things that I've seen. Uh, sort of all over the internet is people using what is now the latest Chaos Space Marine kit and then taking the um, like the Blood Slaughterers or whatever they're called, Rage of Sigma. Yes. And basically doing head and weapon swaps and they yeah, make brilliant berserkers. They look nice, but um, uh, I've seen some of those conversions come through and it's an interesting conversion to do. But as you know, I've got a a little bit of nostalgia in my hobby. I think I've mentioned that previously, <laughs> once oh, or yeah, twice. Of course, yeah. Uh, I so I, some of the old stuff. Less I, from you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, when my figures have that uh, sort of bit of age to them, that that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, you I mean, can get really nice stuff and really nice conversions, but I, I'm I'm totally cool with some of the slightly more comical poses. Uh, <laughs> 
that we're getting some of these old things. And I've got uh, the next squad I'm going to do is actually uh, when I sorry next squad of berserkers. I'm going to do a few more things before I cycle back down to a second squad of berserkers. They're the really old mono pose uh, plastic berserkers, the ones that are just a body and then one separate arm. Um, and I've got a few of those ready to go. Well, like I have to say, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if we might see the eventual new plastic berserker kit with the next Psychic Awakening book, because it seems like World Eaters are one of the factions that are like uh, flagged to appear in it. And if ever there's going to be a time where they could just do a nice, easy standalone release of here's your new Berserker box without having to do a whole bunch of other Chaos releases. Yeah. This would be the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be nice, quite nice if we could see that. I think that would be, be quite a nice standalone release. But I, mean, like, I guess uh, speculation for what might be in uh, mm. future Psychic relation, uh, psychic Awakening <laughs> releases maybe maybe something we should touch on later in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, so what else have you been... So, yeah, that's what okay. I'm doing right now. So I talked about the Black Legion stuff. Um, I've, I've come back to, I'm halfway through a, a Crimson Fist chaplain that's slowly uh, coming up to, to reinforce my Crimson Fist force. And I found I wanted something different just to start on. So I dug out and it's a random sci-fi model just from the Lead Mountain. <laughs> and um, I'm not quite sure what it is. It could be a sports figure. It could be uh, something else. I've decided it's, she's going to be a mech warrior. Uh, she's in, in sort of like lighter clothing. Uh, she's got a helmet though, um, and a couple of armor pads on her. Um, so I think it, it makes quite a nice sort of mech warrior for the for that universe. Um, Twenty eight mil scale, just for something fun to different to paint. Um, and um, I, I'm working on five aquatic alien ship crew. I think I posted some of the previous aquatic aliens that I finished on the on the actual board game Facebook group. Uh, yeah, I saw them on my feed on Twitter. Um, so I'd... a small crew, of five, uh, one droid, and a computer hacker and then the three engineer captain types i'm not quite sure which is which yet but i'm still only halfway through painting those so uh they're they're quite kind of fun um i i finished a couple of squads that i mentioned last time i'd had to finish i was an injury i'd finished painting them but i not got the basin done i didn't take any basic materials apart with me so i finished off the basin on my first uh five rainbow warrior intercessors so they're they're all finished and painted and uh, I'm really happy with those. Uh, they, they've come out really nicely. And the squad of six uh, aquatic alien soldiers uh, that I've finished as well. So uh, so uh, only 11 soldiers finished uh, this month, but I, I'm really pleased with how they've come out. But I guess uh, that's not the only thing I've got on my bench. I've, uh, I've been playing with my 3D printer. I've printed out some uh, rainbow warriors that I found on Thingiverse. <laughs> so... Um, lots of bits of supports and stuff so i'm still in the middle of cleaning them up and cutting off the supports and making them look good i think might need to bit some conversions and stuff because some of it's not quite come out as clean as i'd like but overall i'm pretty happy with them they're quite interesting different models to to get done I'll, they'll make it onto the painting table when i finish cleaning those up excellent and, uh, yeah, just building lots of things. Like I said, I finished uh, building that squad of like Legion bikes. I've been building some Night Haunt from Age of Sigmore. Um, I've got some uh, more Chaos Cultists that I've assembled for, for Black Legion in the future. Um, so a lot more building, really, than, than anything else. I find that a little bit easier to pick up when I've not got much time just building models and, and priming them. And then when I've got a bit more time, like uh, like tonight while we're talking, uh, get on with a bit more painting. So, But I guess uh, there's one other hobby thing. It's not really on my 
on my workbench, but with having spent so much time in the air recently, I've been on my iPad writing up some background for my Rainbow Warriors. So uh, Rainbow Warriors are in the canon, but there's not really much in, much in, information out there about them. So I've just been writing up a bit of background about them uh, for my own use so that I can, I've got some story when I'm playing games with them. I've got some background I can draw on to start telling stories, really. Um, so oh, yeah, it's, it's always brilliant when you do that. Like I love that about my orcs. Like mm-hmm. ever since the inception of um, like, War Boss Sagdreg Ironhide and his uh, his obsessive need to build his iron war. Like I, I always see that whenever in my army, whenever I play with it now, you know, he inevitably goes chasing after the biggest, baddest vehicle he can <laughs> smash up for good bits. Um, I I just see it in my mind's eye whenever I'm adding new units to the army. I'm like, right, how does this fit into Sagtrag's war? How does this fit? Ooh, where did he get this from? And yeah. I say at some point soon, I will inevitably get some admin vehicles in there. <laughs> but yeah, like it just helps bring your own collection to life, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm just, you know, I, I've already got a, a colour scheme, a pattern, and then I know how to paint them, but now I've started to expand a little bit more about where they come from, why they've been around since first edition, but they're really not one of those prime first founder legions anymore, even though they seem to be in Rogue Trader, so I've touched a little bit on that for myself. Uh, and a bit about their character, how they're different, why they sometimes um, seem to rebel. They quite often appear in rebel forces, so there's a slightly darker side to them. They're not all Rainbow Warriors, are good Rainbow Warriors, and certainly I think some Rainbow Warriors will have fallen to chaos. So I'm going to cover all that stuff, as well as bring out some of the characters I talked last time, I think, about... We've, in games recently, I've been finding characters for the Rainbow Warriors. The uh, the captain uh, got a name, Captain Chromas, and uh, the lieutenant, uh, primary lieutenant, uh, lieutenant Bastard, because of his uh, dice rolls <laughs> on his armor <laughs> saves, uh, and and chapter master Arconciel. So um, just expanding that, and now they they've got primaris marines and where they got those from, and you know the kind of things that will allow me to to plug stories together uh, as as I start. Keep playing, well, start playing, keep playing more games with them into the future. So, and uh, I've had one of the lads at the club, Lee, read through it, uh, and he says he's, he's not abysmal. So, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's good. He said he, the style reminded him of uh, um, the kind of thing that we read in the background fluff uh, when we get a codex. So, I've obviously got the style about right. It's just I need to work on some of my terrible sentences that are too long and need cleaning up. So, it's not ready for publication yet, but. I, Probably will put it out there at some point when I'm when I've cleaned it yeah. up and happy with it, but it might be a couple of months yet. I mean, if it's good enough that other people are enjoying it, then you know that's always a good start. Yeah, that's yeah. probably more than most people get around to do with their personal narratives. Like I know I kind of created like the narrative for my own orc force, but I've never really sat down and you know literally written it down as it were. You know, I just know in my own head like how it goes together. But to actually commit it to the page is another step entirely. Yeah, well, well, I've been uh, four weekends in a row. I had long flights, either to or from India, a 10-hour flight. You don't have the internet, but I did have an iPad, so it gave me something to do. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, is that basically everything you've sort of been working on then? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah. I've not really had much time for hotels, but I guess I've, I've gone on a little bit, so uh, uh, there's nothing else on my paint station, guys, and we should uh, consider the next segment, I guess. Yeah, so in that case, then I think we will move on to what games we have been playing, and uh, spoiler alert, we've not been playing 40k. <laughs> Neither of us have been playing 40k. Exactly. I think you've already previewed what you're going to talk about, so yeah. you have to go back into that, Tony. 
Yeah, so we will be back in a second with our entirely topical games played. <laughs> <laughs> Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. So we are back now with Games Played. And as I've already alluded to, basically the only games I've played in the last two weeks were my big event day in Humfirth at the uh, gaming centre down there, playing Necromunda. So, no doubt, a good couple of you listening to the show are aware that I am also a big Necromunda fan, um, and I am part of the Chronicles of the Underhype podcast, so definitely go listen to me over there as well, talk if Necromunda is your thing. But today I am but also not, talking but about... But you're not alone, Tony. There's plenty of his Necrofan fans out there. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. I'm sure. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just what I've been up to, um, so I thought I would talk about it, because to be honest, it was a great event, and, you know... If you're a 40k player, but you've never tried Necromunda, you should do, because it's great. Especially if you enjoy Kill Team, you would also love Necromunda. Um, Necromunda's got a little bit more depth to it sometimes. Kill Team sometimes feels odd with standalone games, uh, but Necromunda's just got a little bit more depth, and certainly around gang development. I guess that wasn't a factor in the tournament, though, right? Um, minimally, um, but not a huge amount. But yeah, the... Um, the big difference is like the campaign progression and stuff in Necromunda is a lot more in depth than like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the level of personalization and in particular the sort of like the level of war gear and the, the really obscure background stuff that they can introduce via like the trading post and stuff is just so extensive now it's amazing like if you want your old rogue trader hit try out Necromunda because they've got some of the you know crazy old weapons available over there that you can use um, but yeah, so I was at this Necromunda, uh, by one day event and it was brilliant. I had a blast. It was great. So I took with me my Escher gang, which is basically the gang that deals in all like chemical warfare and toxic weaponry and, um, like fast and agile. Look, almost think a bit like, like the Eldar of Necromunda in a way, you know, yeah. if, if like the Goliaths are. Like your orcs or your space marines, and um, your orlocks like your imperial guard, then the ashes are kind of like the elder. Did you just um, say orcs and space marines were the same thing, Tony? Well, <laughs> big, tough, burly, enjoy punching things. Yeah, I suppose you got a point. Fair enough. Not, not a world of difference. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was great. Um, I played three games over the day. Um, which game one was basically sort of like a non-Mexican standoff. That's not the right word because it's just two sides. So I guess just a standoff. <laughs> um, but it's a game where it's like you take your, you go to the event with your gang, but you don't necessarily use your entire gang in every game. And in game one, you just used, um, 
between two and four fighters at random. So like each player got D3 plus one crew, uh, crew members. Um, and I ended up playing against a Gene Stealer cult gang because they are also a thing in Necromunda as well as in 40k. Um, and he had a, a neophyte hybrid with a mining laser and a neophyte hybrid with an auto gun as part of like his little standoff crew. And I got basically my contingent of sword fighters, <laughs> which was awesome. <laughs> okay. Cause I got, I got, um, to use three gangers, which included my champion with a chainsawed, a needle pistol and auto pistol and my second champion with a shotgun that fires like acid round bullets, which are amazingly fun and um, were somewhat notorious by the end of the day. Um, and then one of my other gangers who also had a stiletto sword and toxic needle pistol. So lots of toxic weaponry. Um, and basically the nature of that mission is that um, both gangs are kind of the they're trying to intimidate each other. They're having a standoff, you know, so they're like walking towards each other, like a uh, showdown at noon style. And they're trying to hold their nerve. You know, breaks for like whoever loses their cool first will be um, first to draw their weapons. And then all hell breaks loose from there. <laughs> and it was a brutally quick game because basically being Eshers, I'm very quick. Like speed yes. and agility is kind of what my gang does. So <laughs> we're not great at holding our nerve, which meant that basically <laughs> the Gene Stealer cultists kind of just weren't really fussed by the fact we were there. We were kind of, you know, reaching for weapons, all eager to start a fight. And as soon as it was go time, we just sprung on them. Like, you know, let's like literally whipped out pistols, revolvers, all sorts of like Western style and just gunned down these two gene stealer cultists before they really knew what was happening. Uh, which was really funny to be honest. Cause it, it it's one of these odd things where through a combination of strangely failed and past roles, we didn't particularly expect it to go that way, but it did. Um so in the end they ended up walking away with that with a Arguably a victory, but the thing that was interesting about the event is you earned kind of like two scoring points throughout the games. You earned experience for the gang and reputation for the gang. Right. <laughs> Basically, because I succeeded at killing his guys more than he did me, I gained more XP. But because he kept his cool and I didn't, I was the gang that was sort of like two too tetchy and um, you know we drew too quickly and all the rest of it and we weren't seen to be keeping our cool basically you know like we were the nervous ones yeah, yeah, yeah. we didn't earn any reputation like the gene stealer cults were just seen as the hard guys for just taking it <laughs> so his gang walked away and could be a rep out of it um and then game two was a multiplayer game which for starters is something you don't get to do a lot of in other game systems when you go to like an event like this. No, so that was a nice novelty that there's actually three of us at this one table. Um, and that was a pit fight mission. So that's where each gang sort of like submitted its champions to the pit fight. And it, the idea is meant to be like a public arena and 
it was a spectacle that was being put on in the Undhive. So there was no sort of like easy deaths. So the mission was slightly modified compared to standard like wounding and casualty rules so that people didn't just go out with a drop of a hat. Like you had to yeah. properly kind of like, you know, injure each other and wear each other's wounds down and sort of slowly cut each other down to the last man standing. And um, that was my two extra champions. The two Gene Stealer cult champions, which is they're acolyte hybrids of these two mining lasers. So just blasting these horrendously powered like lasers beams <laughs> through the underhive trying to catch me as I'm flipping and somersaulting my way towards them. Um, and there were two bounty hunters um, as well. So the other third gang that was there was like the Benatar gang, so the, like, the bounty hunter gang. So was that the same Gene Steeler cult player that you played in round one? It was, yes. Um, so I, I had a little bit of a basic, like a gang rivalry with him by the end of the day. It was really funny <laughs> because so we had our standoff game one and everyone else obviously had their standoffs. And then based on rankings from Rep and XP, it was determined like which pool of um, gladiators in the pit fight you were fighting in. And it turned out that one of my two opponents was the Gene were cool player that I just played. And then the, uh, this Venator gang of bounty hunters. So how many players were there in total at the tournament, Tony? Uh, <laughs> there were just six um, okay. players. So it's not like there was a matchup out of 60. <laughs> no, it wasn't a huge event in numbers-wise, but to be honest, that's Necromunda as well. Like, it's not the... It's not got the biggest following compared to things like 40k, Age yeah. of Sigma... You know, even Blood Bowl has a more long-term established sort of like tournament or event-based fellowship because there was a Blood Bowl event happening at the venue on the same day as well. And okay. they had, I think, 16 players. Oh, yeah, and it's um, just been the Blood Bowl World Cup as well, and that was uh, over a 1,000 players this time. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, one of the reasons why I was there was uh, was because Necromunder events are so rare. You just don't see them. Yes. You know, True. so I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to go to that. And... Um, you know, I'm going to talk about it on the Chronicles podcast as well, but like, it was just so much fun. It didn't matter that there was only six of us. We had such a blast. And ultimately, I played against, because of the pit fight, I played against three different people, even though I played one of them twice, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and basically, by the end of this pit fight, um, my chainsawed and pistol wielding champion ended up in a a 2v1 combat with both the Gene Stealer hybrids. So they're sort of like flailing around with these mining lasers and their clawed third hands while she's parrying blows and firing needle rifle shots into them and all sorts. And uh, she basically, she kept them tied up, brought one of them to like the edge of death Um before the second one was able to sort of disengage and then catch her with the uh, mining laser and took her out. Meanwhile, my other champion had basically been trading shots with the bounty hunters. So she'd caused some sort of like some wounds and injuries and stuff to them. Um, <laughs> but then having dispatched with my chainsaw champion, the heavily injured, um, gene stealer hybrid decided he, uh, to suddenly pop up and take like 
um, an opportunity shot with his laser right into the middle of the bounty hunters and my other champion. Um, it missed by champion, but just basically turned one of these bounty hunters to ash. Just yeah, mining lasers will do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so my, my shotgun champion, she, she basically leapt back up, sprinted over to this, like, um, vent in the wall that this Gene Sealer cultist had fired through, because he's literally like rolled up to this uh, solid wall and fired through this vent. <laughs> and um, Selena, my champion, she ran up to it on the other side and just unloaded her acid round shotgun straight through it into this guy on the other side of the wall. And not only did she take him out of the game, which, given it was the pit fight, meant that that was more effort than just injuring him normally, she took him out, she actually killed him. Which, okay. given how the event is running, there was only one result on a D66 table. So there's only a 1 in 36 chance of getting the actual, like, dead result yeah. <laughs> in this event. So it was, it's the memorable death result, which basically means that, one, he's been killed in such a definitive way that there is absolutely no way he can survive. Like, you know, doctors can't save him. Surgery's not going to save him. Even Gene Sealer cults trying to stitch him back together isn't going to work. And done in such a way that basically that was the highlight of the pit fight. That was the thing that the crowds would have been yelling and cheering at. So I can only imagine that hitting him with acid rounds, he's basically just disintegrated into like a puddle <laughs> of like so biogenetic material. Was that the only death in the tournament? It was. It was the only... Um, like memorable slash permadeath that occurred in the event that day, which actually won me a side prize for doing so. And I got <laughs> a set of um, House Dialac Necromunda dice as the uh, reward for getting the memorable death of the day. <laughs> um, but yeah, and <laughs> the sad thing, as it were, was that um, the Gene Steeler Cult player had to play the third and final game of the day, which was the game where you played with your entire gang and you had a traditional full like gang clash game. Mm. He had to play that without one of his mining laser guys because yeah. I'd killed him in the pit fight. <laughs> he was not there anymore. He can't fight if he's a pile of goo. That's true. That's true. So what was your third game against in your gang fight? So my third game again was against the other Venator player at the event. So a a bounty hunter gang, bounty hunter gang. but a different player and it was a different gang. And whew, were they tough. Like, they were a seriously well-kitted out like Venator gang. All the fancy gear, all the fancy weapons. Like, leader with plasma gun that can fire twice and every time he looked at someone they just disintegrated... Um, like a chainsaw, a, a dual chainsawed wheeling lunatic on like combat drugs, uh, basically butcher's nails. He was more or less a, like a corn berserker, not in power armor. Uh, well, I am painting corn berserkers in power armor, so I can empathize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and in the end, um, so just back by one second. In the end, I did actually win the pit fight mission. I ended up with one last standing champion. So, um, Selena, after blowing away the first guy, she, uh, like sprinted around the corner, reloaded a shotgun, and, uh, whilst the, 
other Gene Steeler hybrid was busy lasering the other Venator bounty hunter into nothing. Um, she was able to close the distance, dodge a, a laser shot or two, and then she got him in combat. And okay. a- after what can only be described as a slap fight, <laughs> because after 12 <laughs> rounds of Necromunder, um, we were both out of ammo. We both had like no weapons left. We were on single wounds, bleeding yep. out. Like <laughs> we, we were just completely out of resources. And in the end, she just managed to get the killing blow in with a like stiletto knife. And uh, she emerged victorious, but it was hard fought and it was awesome. Excellent. So then, game three was against these Venators, so I'd actually, I'd like one kind of game one in that I'd done really well at one aspect of it and not so well at the other aspect, but I kind of want to win like the primary victor. Game two was the pit fight and I actually won my pit fight. Um, and then game three, it was a really good game of Necromunda on these really dense, multi-tiered, multi-leveled boards with all sorts of gantries and walkways. And it was amazing. Like at one point, so this basically the Calm Berserker guy, one of his downsides of being on all the drugs that he's on is that he has to basically run towards the nearest enemy model, like more or less whenever possible. <laughs> so I had a leader, sorry, not a leader, I had a champion who was basically carting him um, across the rooftops because I'm fast and agile, but he's just having to clamber his way up and sort of chase me and he never really got to me. In the in the end, he did manage to catch one of my unfortunate shotgun gangers who uh, was too busy trading shots of his bolter guy to see this guy with the chainsaws <laughs> come running up behind her. And uh, yeah, he kind of tore her in two when he got hold of her. Yep. Um, but meanwhile, I'm trying to avoid this leaders firing like deadly pinpoint accurate plasma shots. And I'm trying to take out any of his bounty hunters that I can isolate. At one point, he had a guy with a power axe up on this third gantry level. And I set up one of my sword and pistol gangers and she knocked him clear off the top gantry. But this guy is so heavily armored and tough that he fell like three stories and just took it. Just hit the floor okay. and didn't even get hurt. <laughs> He's just like, wow, that guy's tough. At which point then I proceeded to keep him occupied in my chainsaw champion because he may have been hard as nails, but she was fast and she, he couldn't end up landing any blows on her. And in the game, in the end, the game sort of like went to time as it were. And we worked out what sort of scoring we were currently on based on experience and rep. <laughs> and in the end, the, the game was a complete draw between the two of us. We both had 14 points of experience that we'd earned from, you know, injury yep. and harming each other. And neither of us had any rep at that point because neither one of us had sort of like gave me up a hand in the mission. So game three ended up in a, like a complete and utter draw. Like we could not have been more evenly matched, even though we were both very sort of degraded from our starting gangs we were still very evenly matched at that point. Yes. Um, and the end result of it all was that my opponent in game three, he actually ended up winning the whole event of the day. Super. Once he worked out like the standings and I ended up coming third, which yeah, well done. <laughs> I know there was only six people involved, but it was one of these funny things where because of how the scoring system worked, it was kind of like the top three were kind of quite, 
defini- uh, differentiated from the lower three, if that makes sense. But then the spacings between them each were very close. And uh, I was quite happy with it because in the end, I walked away with a bunch of prizes. So I came away with um, some hobby supplies. I got like a new um, Citadel spray can of um, a finished Stratton Grey. I got the Dilac um, gang dice for getting me a memorable death for the day. Yep. Um, some new plastic glue and some card sleeves from Astro Military for the Tactics cards. And all off the prize wall because they basically had like a arcade sort of ticket style prize system. So from winning, you got given chips that were worth so many like prize points and they had like a prize wall where you could trade those chips in for the things that you wanted from it. So that was awesome. I would Super. definitely be going again the next time they have any kind of member event. And I will be keeping an eye out for any 40k events they have that take my fancy as well because I would love to go play in some 40k games down there. Yeah, I'm a bit jealous. I used to live quite a lot close to home birth than I do now. Uh, not an easy place for me to get. So I'm a bit jealous you were able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it seems like a really good event centre and I'd definitely go again. Like They've got some really cool um, like 40k boards that I want to play on. They've got a huge like apocalypse-style imperial um, like castle almost. It's It, yeah. it really builds into the medieval gothic architecture of the Imperium, but it's still very much covered in like Aquilas and like Bastion points and stuff. And I bet they play some really fun apocalypse games on that. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. I've been busy trading blows in the Underhive. Um, but maybe, maybe by the next show, I might have actually played another game of 4K. Or maybe not, we'll see. But I'm thinking I might actually take the Necrons out for a spin next time I hit the table. Very spacing, Ned. (laughs) Um, So Um, meanwhile, tell me all about the games of 40k that you've not been playing. Yes, amongst the many 40 games of 40k I've been playing uh, amount to zero. So, but that doesn't mean I've not been doing narrative gaming. So, um, the, the, I've only really played one game uh, since we last recorded. Uh, that was against Lee, who's uh, one of the admins at our club, 2D6 Lodge in Cambridge. Uh, and Lee reached out to me uh, uh, on uh, Messenger on the, online and said, I really want to play against you. We've not played for ages, which was true. I said, no problem. What do you want to play? And he's not he's not feeling 40k at the moment. He's played 40k in the past, but he's really into Age of Sigma. So he said, I want to play Age of Sigma. I said, that's okay, because I've got my army. Um, Nighthaunt army reinforced a little bit. He said, but I want to do something different. I've been listening to episode 8, and I want to do something narrative in Age of Sigma. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, although that we focus mostly on 40k when we talk on these podcasts, of course, narrative war gaming is not necessarily limited only to 40k. Oh, not at all. That's what we focus on here. Uh, You've just been talking about it for Necromunda, or that's a bit more 40k related. But um, <laughs> 40k adjacent. So 40k adjacent, indeed. Uh, but so is Age of Sigma, really. And there's plenty. I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to us. Uh, where, listen to this podcast who, who play games like Age of Sigma, even if not everybody does. Um, and what Lee wanted to do was actually recreate something he'd been reading about. So he's been reading about Gotrek, and obviously there's been a storyline in Age of Sigma where Gotrek was a, a dwarf slayer from the old world, as, uh, awoken in, in the new realms of, of the Age of Sigma, and he's, he's trying to hunt down Nagash, Lord of the Undead, right? Um, <laughs> as you do. Indeed. I mean, it's just one of those things. Uh, uh, and he wanted to recreate something to do with that. Um, so I said, okay, if you've got something in mind, you come with a scenario, you've, you've 
we've talked before, me and him, uh, and he's also listened to us talk about how, how we create a story. And so I said, you just create the scenario. And he said, right, 2,000 points, bring Nagash and uh, and some of you are undead. So that's what I did. And my Nagash is not the new one, the, the new plastic one. I don't, and I don't own that one. What I do own is the very old Warhammer one uh, that's made out of metal and looks like a clown, <laughs> if you're familiar with that old Yes, Gash I model. know that one. <laughs> the classic so, uh, Gash model. That, that probably doesn't surprise our listeners. I think they've heard me waffle on enough about uh, old miniatures <laughs> to, to not be surprised that I've got an old Nagash model in my collection. He's not painted, unfortunately, So, but then, to be fair, neither was Lee Gotrek, so so that was okay. But the rest of our armies were. And the other thing that's been exciting was the release of the Free People's Book. So he'd got a, a mixture of uh, humans and, and, and elves. And the scenario you came up with was that the, the Free People's were behind a city and there was an undead army menacing them. And Gotrek had gone to their aid and would walked out to face the undead army alone to give them confidence to come out. But Gotrek's motive for doing that was to uh, try and attack Nagash. So um, what we played was I Gotrek came out alone and I started with uh, an equivalent, more or less equivalent. So I think Gotrek's worth 580 points. Something like that. Don't quote me. 500 ballpark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I started with 600 points of undead on the table, but Gotrek is a beast. I mean, he's like, uh, he's like a great demon of chaos <laughs> in 40k. He's got his axe and he, all his re-rolls and his saving throws. And uh, he just he just went through uh, <laughs> my undead. I got 30, a squad of 30 skeletons, uh, 20 chain rasps, and, and uh, I got a necromancer leading them as well. Because uh, I got a bit of a mix of, of classic Nagash and Dead and, and, and Nighthorns in there. And he was just killing them. But by the end of round two, if Gotrek was still alive, and I had not even scored a wound on him <laughs> um, by that point, then, then Nagash's attention was, was drawn and he's, he's, uh, he appeared on the tabletop uh, in a random place. And at that point, the rest of the army, his army, was free to come out. So there was a little bit of a, a big... Uh, cinematic you know <laughs> just slaying of all the monsters around him with a big pile of i was gonna say a big pile of dead but let's say a big pile of undead around him and um very and then much Nagash standing on top of it yelling come out and face me exactly exactly so then he did and um and we said that all all of my arm that was off the table and a lot of it was characters uh because i deliberately put a lot of troops out to face Nagash to make sure that we would get to turn two without killing him because <laughs> there's no fun right well if, if you don't do that you, you we the point was to try and have this big climatic battle so there's no point trying to set it up to fail it's not the game wasn't about winning or losing it was about telling the story right and um so then he appears and he starts summoning left, right, and centre. He's got something ridiculous like was it six spells a turn or eight spells a turn? I can't uh, remember. All <laughs> the spells, all the turns. Yeah, summoning everything, casting all these spells. He's got a shooting attack. He's got two quite brutal close combat attacks. And he just starts taking apart elves and humans, uh, as do my heroes and, and things. So he starts summoning into battle. Um and, you know, it's fairly balanced. I, I think he probably killed a little bit more of me than I did of him, but um, Nagash himself is like 800 points. Um, so he's a really, really point-heavy model, despite the fact he's, he's, he's almost a bit more of a beast than, than the Gotrek himself is. Um, and, and so he had a few units left, but there, there were some great things. Like some pistoliers and horses came charging in into Nagash, and it's just like they came in in a line and were just taken out immediately. <laughs> it's just like... No, you're dead. No, you're dead. So he was—he was a very hero hammer, you know, as you would imagine, with such which, some, such 
big heroes on the table. And it, it got towards the end of turn six where, where we said that we were going to draw a line. And um, uh, we'd set it up so that I'd just delayed go trick a little bit, but so that they would come together and clash in, in, in turn six. And um, we made sure that the, the charge roll that go trick made for about eight inches is passed, regardless of whatever we bowled, <laughs> because yeah. we wanted that to happen. Uh, but he had done quite a good job with his, his wizard and uh, a couple of units. I managed to take some wounds off Nagash. He was just throwing so many, so many hits at them that they lost a, a little over half of his wounds by the point that they got into close combat. And then we had these two or three rounds, uh, two rounds, we had two rounds of combat where they were just going at each other. And they, they really were just, just battling away, knocked off a couple of wounds each. And it got down to the point where they got one wound each. And uh, uh, Gotrek's got this thing where he actually fights twice in the in the fight in the fighting phase. So he fights first, then Nagash fought, and then uh, Gotrek gets to attack again at the end of the, the close combat phase. Um, and it, it, it got to the point where twice he'd, he'd He'd effectively knocked off all his wounds, except that um, it, with all the saves and that it's got a special death save, which is like a feel no pain kind of thing. He just managed to stay on one wound and Gotrek was down to just one wound. And at the very end of the battle, it, it had just stayed that way as well. So right at the end, we had this big climatic, uh, you know, set to neither of them are quite won. Yeah. I guess disappeared. Uh, so they, they had a coming to, but they can come back again another day. Uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun because we we deliberately scripted it to be narrative. We we played it uh, not to win or lose, but to to play out the battle and have that that heroic confrontation. And we both enjoyed it so much. It was so much fun. I was going to say there is actually like one or two scenarios that have crept their way into the forty k stuff that's like very much intended to recreate that sort of like epic encounter between mighty heroes, yeah. like. There's a mission in the Vigilus book that's meant to be the clash between Abaddon and Kalga. And it's basically yeah. like playing a standard 40k game, except that these two are dueling in the center. Only they can attack each other. And they can't attack anything else. And you play using your standard 40k rules, but they count as having like 25 wounds each. Yeah. So when you're bashing away with like these D6 damage weapons and stuff, it, it kind of really does create a real slugfest like sense of um, momentum to gaining advantage and um, beating your opponent and then maybe they get a, a good round in and then suddenly they're back in it and so on. There's some very like set piece missions that are out there if you want to do that kind of stuff. There's um, there's one in the new Phoenix Rising book. The Phoenix Rising, I was just thinking yeah, that as you were saying that. <laughs> it literally says that like it's meant to be the battle between um, Shalaxi Hellbane and Euphrane um, and a collection of Eldar heroes. And the Eldar player has to build an army that is just Eldar characters to fight a Sadeshi Horde. And again, there's a reason why you couldn't adapt that to play a mission where you just had Gotrix or whoever and all these... Yeah free people's heroes who then take on the undead. Like there's loads of cool sort of instances like that to help you create these scenarios. And they're a lot of fun to play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's a I don't know whether it's generally available or not, but I remember about this time last year I, I happened to be in California for work and I went into a local games workshop there and it was a there was a I think it was a one of the uh, primaries lieutenants was available, and they were giving away a free mission that was more or less a one-on-one forty -on -one k mission uh, using the forty k rules. Um, That's cool. I don't remember the name of that. I should dig that out. Yes, I should have had that to hand, but I've only mm -hmm. thought of it as we're talking. <laughs> um, 
but I remember picking it up as a, an event day model with with this this one page uh, free mission that they were giving away, which was a effectively a one on one combat. But it wasn't kill team; it was using forty k volts. Well, speaking of you know mighty heroes and mighty clashes and so on, I think this is a perfect little segue into a reminder about the new hobby hero challenge for this month. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic segue. Are you going to uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, re-announce that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, like in the last episode, um, we announced the first Hobby Hero Challenge, which is going to be a, a monthly thing that we run now. Um, and basically every month, we'd like the listeners to submit via either Instagram or Twitter um, their various hobby projects that they're working on. You know, be it painting, building, converting, playing games, whatever. Like, if you've got, if you've played Abaddon versus Calder and you've got a, a nice, wonderful shot from the game and we can see it playing out, I'd love to see that. Um, and the first month's theme is indeed heroes. So anything heroic or mighty clashes or recently converted primaris lieutenants or whatever, <laughs> um, I want to see them all. So. You've got until October 31st to get submissions in for the first month's Hobby Hero Challenge. And you can submit your entries on Twitter at Narrative40k or on Instagram at NarrativeWarGamer. Just remember to use the hashtag Hobby Hero so that I can find them and I can see them. And uh, I will pick a winner every month and I will announce them on the following show and that lucky someone gets access to all our tier one patreon rewards for free so yeah. you get free stuff which includes access to our exclusive narrative war in the discord our exclusive um, patrons chat group on facebook um, and eventually down the line that will include some custom missions i'm currently working on so they will start leaking their way out as well to our patrons so Good stuff to be had all around, but the main thing is we get to see all the cool things that people are working on, and we get to talk about them on future episodes. So, yeah, October thirty first for the first month's Hobby Hero Challenge with the theme of heroes. Let's see all your heroics, people. Um, and with that wrapped up, I think it's about time we move on to our spotlight topic. Super. So we'll be back in a second, guys. And like the phoenix, we have risen. <laughs> we have got a hold of the new Phoenix Rising rules for you. And we're going to go through some of the things that we think are interesting in this new book and this new release. And the first in the upcoming range of Psychic Awakening books. And I have to say, first impressions, I'm really pleased with it, Dave. don't know about you, but I think it's yeah. a, a brilliant little book. It is. Um, it's not huge. I mean, there's, there's been a bit of commentary on price, but we, we, we're not really going to go there because I think it's value for money. Um, I do. I mean, I think this book is a really good insight into what all the future Psychic Awakening books are going to be. And like my summary of them, essentially, at this point anyway, I'm, I, I reserve the right to change this opinion in the future <laughs> because it proves to be completely wrong. But this feels like the Eldar supplements. So in the way that like we've got the new supplement, Imperial Face, new supplement, Salamanders, White Scars, Ultramines, whatever for Space Marines, 
I feel like book one of the Psychic Awakening, Phoenix Rising, is this is your Eldar race supplements. So this is where your supplemental rules are for craft worlds, for Drukhari cabals and covens and cults. Yep. Um, like there's a, a, a bunch of fun new things in here. There's even like a new psychic law for the craft worlds and stuff like the Rings of Fortune. Um, they've got new powers for the uh, aspect warriors. Um, so not only is there like some new stratagems in here, but also like whole new tables of um, exact powers. There is even basically an entire mini codex in this book because it, there's basically Codex Unari, um, which you know previously in Eighth Edition has been an index army in its entirety, even though it's just three models that form the basis of it. And then a couple of months ago, it got an official sort of like update in the form of a white dwarf on list. Um, well, now Codex Genari exists in this book, kind of in the way that how the beta sister codex existed in chapter 20, chapter approved, um, chapter 18. So if you, if you want to click Genari, this is the book to have basically Codex Genari. Um, and I think this is an interesting way of doing it because I mentioned on an episode or two ago that, like, I would love to see codex, like, say a new codex ox alongside six new clan supplements. I'd love to see, um, a new codex necrons along with six dynasty supplements in the way that they've done it with the space ones. But I don't think we're going to see that. Not for every race. Yeah, I think yeah, we're going to sure see we'll these see books. Race. I, I think we'll see something a bit more like this that connects them together. But that, that could be quite interesting. We've seen this before mm. um, with some of what they did in the last edition with some of the the chaos, uh, the crimson, like the crimson slaughter, say crimson's the laughter, but demon crimson king. slaughter, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, de- that demon king, things like that, had a similar format to this. Although these these ones, the space marine ones, and the psychic awakening one just seems a little bit more refined. I, I think in previous editions, once all the codexes have sort of come out and then they've started branching into things like, you know, supplement craft or die and uh, supplement black legion and so on. I think they've almost, they've not been sure how they want to go about continuing rolling out new and exciting law yeah. and rules and relics and stratagems and that sort of stuff, you know, how to roll out more gameplay assets for your races without doing codex updates. And I think perhaps yeah. this is probably their best implementation of that philosophy today. Because this isn't just yeah. codex unitary, like supplement unitary. It isn't just supplement craft wielders. This has got the Drukari, the Yunari, um, the Aldari, and um, let me just see one. Is that all of them? Yeah, basically all but the Harlequins are covered in here. Yeah, and even the Harlequins are touched on at reference. And it, it, to me, it's got a feel of um, you get. We've had a. We've been on the cliffhanger of the forty k law for for quite a long time, and this feels like we've come back after the advert break. And we're looking at what is happening next with the Eldar. What's happening with the Eldar, particularly <laughs> yeah, after the, uh, the thing so. I can't pronounce, the sicker sicker 
cicatrix maledicta. That's right. Yeah. That so the way that the whole the rest of the Imperiums moved on two hundred years mm. uh, or whatever it is with the with the with the events that went on, and there was a bit of touching Eldar, but there's been nothing about what what has been happening with. Uh, the main body of the Eldar race, uh, the, the the three main the three main groups of them, um, and this this book really touches on that and, and takes that forward a little bit in this, the same sort of way, right? It does, and what I'm expecting we might see is we get maybe monthly or bi-monthly releases of Psychic Awakening, and yeah. that touches on whichever codexes and races and armies they want to put out some new rules or updates or new models, like say. Hints that perhaps World Eaters are mentioned in the next one, so they've got this new Berserker kit they want to put out. Cool, just put it out with that release. They don't need to do a full Chaos Range release. Well, I think maybe for the past two years, we've had like at least one new codex a month, sometimes two codexes a month, because they've been trying to get through all like, you know, 24 factions or whatever it is that exist in 40k now over two years since the release of 8th edition. Well, now all those codexes are out, and if 8th edition never like officially transitions to 9th edition, if instead it becomes like the living rule set that is 8.5, mm-hmm. then they can pedal back on focused army releases, and rather than having monthly new codexes, we have quarterly codex releases. But those codex releases take the form of how they've done it with the Space Marines now. Like, when did Codex Space Marines come out? I think it must have been, like, nearly six, eight weeks ago. Like, it must have been nearly two months since the actual core Codex Space Marines was released. And yet, yeah, it's only just this weekend that you're actually able to get the final part of the third wave of releases for that. Yeah. And Codex Imperial Fists and Codex Salamanders have only just hit the shelves. The Impulsor kits and the Infiltrators have only just hit the shelves. I reckon we might start seeing more long-drawn-out releases of armies for a single codex on a less regular basis, but we'll see it and they'll do it properly. Like, maybe when they next look at doing the Astra Militarum, they'll go, here's Codex Astra Militarum. Here's your six supplemental regiment books. And here's a plastic kit for Mordians. Here's a plastic kit for Valhallans. Here's a plastic kit for um, Steel Legion. But that rollout yeah. will take two to three months for the entire Astra Militarum range rollout. And that's fine, because alongside that, it can be going, here's Psychic Awakening for Chaos. Here's Psychic Awakening for Orcs and Nids. Here's Psychic Awakening for um, Space Marines and Chaos Space Marines, you know, whatever. And you know how many Imperial Guard players are going to be happy if they, they get that those uh, different regimental plastic kits. Uh, that's really yeah, going to be I think that's what we might see. I think we might see less regular but more in-depth core army releases. And actually, the thing that's just going to keep us rolling from month to month to month is these supplemental books, these Psychic Awakening releases. And I think that's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. I so I completely agree. The Eldar range... Like, if you're any flavor of Eldar, you've just had a real big re-injection of stuff into your range. You've had, you've had even, like, um, new points values for certain, like, the new models of things like the Incubi, the Howling Banshees, Jinzar. They've had 
I don't know if they've actually had any points changes as such, but at least they've got points values in these books, you know, so they are able to consciously perhaps introduce more changes and updates. Yeah, I, I was to say about myself, I'm not so much of a tournament player. I can't even say I've looked at the points values in the new book. With <laughs> mm. I've seen they're there, but I've not absorbed them or compared them to anything. I was looking at all the uh, the war zones, the emissions, and the uh, the background fluff. <laughs> so Maybe that says more about me. Like I think it's brilliant that they've introduced craft world attributes, which I want to touch on because this is something that. I wasn't quite expecting and I was really surprised at. So yeah. One of the one of the big changes from seventh edition to eighth edition was the introduction of like factions within factions. So things like craft you know, craft world Aliotech, um craft world Ulfway, craft world Betan, they all got their own custom, what you would traditionally call it, chapter tactics within yeah. Craft World Eldar. And that's been applied to like every codex since, you know, I've got Necron dynasties or clans have their own rules, whatever, so on and so on. Yeah. And we thought, oh, that's really cool because the only time we've sort of seen that before on any level was been with the Space Marine chapters. And the regiments, Imperial Guard regiments had it in previous editions, right? Um, yes, very briefly. I think there was a window when you had like custom regimental rules and so on. But, but yes, I, but yeah, so I, we did know that. Over the years, there have occasionally been things that have meant that your Imperial Fists have played a little different to your Ultramarines, who've played a little different to your Salamanders. Mm-hmm. But a, like a Bad Moon's Orc, traditionally, always played exactly the same as a Goth Orc or an Evil Sun Orc. Yeah. Well, they brought in that level of change for 8th edition. The thing that was a real surprise that I did not expect them to do was what was essentially the concept of either like custom regiments or chapter successes, like yep. successor chapters from Space Marines. So, again, there have been editions past where you've been able to create your own custom chapter tactics for Space Marines because that's a thing very much written into the law of Space Marines that there are thousands of chapters and you can create your own and they don't necessarily all fight the same way as the original, like, nine Loyal Legions. And they introduced that in the new Space Marine Codex, all these chapters, uh, like successor chapters, traits, and you can yep. pick and sort of choose your own traits that you relate to your personal creator chapter. Uh, I've been doing that with a Rainbow Warriors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they've gone and done it for Eldar, <laughs> and that is not something I expected, and it's amazing. Like you've now uh, got craft world attributes. Definitely. I mean, as somebody who's in the process of building up a craft world LR army, uh, with my own colour scheme and provisionally my own uh, craft world, craft world in continentia, um, the, um, the, this is fantastic. Immediately I was into this and I was like, I can't, I haven't decided yet. I've just opened it at the page while you've been talking and I just can't decide which of these attributes I want my, my own personal craft world to have. Uh, but it, there's such a choice. Uh, and it's, it, after getting used to it, Using those things for Rainbow Warriors and the Space Marine Codex, seeing that I've got now that I've got that option for my own, it just just adds so much to to the kind of uh, world building, the the background that you can tell, and and then that leads into the storytelling of the game. So it makes me so excited to to get this option. <laughs> More excited Same. than your man's got a right to be, or the toy soldiers. Yeah, like I was, it sets a really interesting precedent for future 
releases because I I was saying before that you know like I don't particularly expect to see it, but I would love to see supplement death skulls, you know, for my orcs. Okay, fine. Maybe we won't see supplement books in the way the Marines see them. Like I say, maybe that's a thing they do a couple of a couple times a year, some armies, yeah. but not everyone. But I wouldn't be surprised if you get custom um, tribe attributes for orcs or clan yeah. coaches or even custom war ones. Like, so yeah, I was going to say that's a little bit more likely. So that the, the, yeah, so like, certainly with orcs. The way that the leader is, the way that the boss, the war boss is, really defines the way that the whole war is is led, uh, and you see that in the background in the fiction that you that you read. Uh, yeah, so like um, war level attributes will be excellent. For example, Zagdreg, he's a death skull. His clan is a death skull. He's my army that I've always painted has always been death skulls. But while I don't necessarily expect, I would then create them as my own clan. Because it's like, well, not they are death skulls, that's what they are. But then, even by death skull standards, Sagdreg has an obsession with building as many armored vehicles as he wants and can yeah. possibly get. You know, he wants to have a fully mounted, mechanized war. Everyone's got a, a truck, a buggy, a wagon, and not in a speed freak style way where it's all about going fast. No, he just wants, like, you know, <laughs> your Iron Brigade of tanks. You yeah. know, he wants to crump all the humies under the treads of his massive iron behemoths. And yeah. I'm sure there would be precedent now for them creating, like you say, war traits or attributes that would be appropriate to that. You know, maybe my guys have like preferred enemy vehicles or something like that. You know, there's all sorts of interesting things. Um, and there are some really interesting examples of these craft world attributes. So, like, just one or two of them I'll just read off now. You've got things like Diviners of Fate. Models of this attribute have 6 plus invul. Mm-hmm. Um, Grim. When a morale test is taken for a unit with this attribute, you can reroll the dice. Yeah. Um, Headstrong. When a charge roll is made for a unit with this attribute, add one to the result. And I like, quite like Warding Wounds, which gives you a 5 plus feel no pain <laughs> against mortal wounds. <laughs> yeah, which is really cool. And like with chapter tactics, the um, successor chapters, you pick two of these. So you're not just having one as well. Like you're choosing the two things that sort of define your uh, craft world. So like there might be two different players who have two different craft worlds who are particularly known to have been dividers of fate. So they both have six spinwards. But one of them is known for being like children of the open skies and get better advances in movement on their flying vehicles. Whereas the other, you know, like dividers of fate are known for being um, headstrong and they get the additional rules to charging and stuff and yeah so you know in this one book we've you've not only got rules for capital attributes but they've also done the same for the Drukari so you've got custom attributes for cabals covens and cults I think they call obsessions right well uh, yeah in their case yeah, yeah. so cabal obsessions cult obsessions the monkeys coven obsessions but it allows you to customise it Yes, you can create you can create your own cabal. Like yeah. mine were always the cabal of the Obsidian Rose, I think it was. Um, okay. Basically, the cabal that followed um, Lady Malleus, who was um, their archon, but she used to be an old special character, but she's not around anymore. Um, but she was really cool because she was basically like the closest rival to Vect, <laughs> um, because she 
she was basically like a demonically possessed Dark Elder. She shared her soul with um, a demon entity that she'd like struck a bargain with. And uh, she was just a really, really cool character. And I always liked her cabal. Well, now, you know, you could sort of represent her cabal if you used the sort of custom obsessions in here. So things like um, disdain for lesser beings when a morale test is taken for a unit with this obsession. No more than one model can flee. And um, webway raiders, the one where you know, the webway portal strategy can be used an additional time. Um, yeah. Per battle for each attachment in your army that contains use of obsession. The second the subsequent uses can only be used to set up units of obsession. So it's really cool. Like, my favorite thing about Eighth Edition was always the um, like chapter tactics that were introduced for all the races, clan trades, the craft worlds, whatever. And this is just another layer of that, and it's amazing. So I think that is one of my favorite takeaways from this book and just what it like represents for the future releases. Yeah, it's just the options. The same thing as I was saying before was for the craft world, the options for, for customising your force and giving it a, a flavour and a reason and a, a personality for, for being on the battlefield. And then there is another thing that I want to touch on in here that's, again, a really interesting precedent for future releases is the Runes of Fortune discipline available to Craft World Eldar. It's not just a new psychic law table. It's actually, it's a law where you take a power from the Runes of Fortune instead of taking Smite for that Psyker. Which is something new that we've not seen before. So, for the first time in 40k, you could actually have a psycho who doesn't know Smite. Right. You instead, and they're all sort of like what you would call low level powers, sort of like on par with Smite. So, for example, in this entire discipline, the warp charge of every power is either four or six. Like, you know, so you've not got these warp charges like seven, eight, and nines, big fancy powers. They're just other nice little things that you've got that you can uh, generate for your warlocks and stuff. Things yeah, like. They, um, I think they flavour the, the psycho as well. So I got on this table, I quite like Witch Strike, which has got a warp charge of four. And when manifested, it was until the start of your next hacking phase, you had two damage to the Psyker's melee weapons. So so that kind of thing that you see in the books, where the Psyker's using their psychic powers to enhance their combat ability, instead of Smite, they, they could take mm. this instead, right? Like, uh, I think um, Focus Will is a really interesting one, where it's like you, you cast Focus Will, uh, which is a warp charge of six. If manifested, you select one friendly Craft World Psyker within six inches of this Psyker. And until the end of this phase, when a deny the witch test is taken for that model, you add two to the total. Which basically means that if your friendly psyker then attempts to manifest a power and your opponent tries to stop it, you get to add plus two to the value of that power for casting, so making it too harder to deny. Yeah. Because you're channeling their will together, like this warlock is helping empower the Farseer or whatever. Um and I know that one of the one of the sort of reasons for this is because the Eldar can take a lot of warlocks in one force. Like they have the Seer Council, yeah. And realistically, you could have like 
10 warlocks or whatever, they, most of them would just end up smiting because you can't repeatedly cast same powers. So even though all 10 of them might know all six powers of their, you know, psychic discipline between them, you're still not going to get to cast every single one of them because they're probably not all going to be useful or castable at any one time. And the other half of the conclave is just going to have to do smites. So having the ability to replace, like, you know, six different smites across those warlocks with these six different ruins of fortune suddenly means your conclave's actually got a whole catalogue of powers that it can be casting and using. Um, and I think it also opens up opportunities for some of the other psychers where smite just doesn't necessarily seem like the thing they might always be doing. The one that jumps to mind for me is um, Astropaths and the Imperial Guard. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if you got like a telepathy discipline that allowed Astropaths to replace Smite with some low-level, helpful buffy powers or debuffs. Because just because they're an Astropath doesn't mean they're going to typically be, you know, firing lightning bolts out of their eyes or telekinetically throwing, you know, um, tanks at people. <laughs> But that's yeah. more traditionally what Smite is meant to represent. So I think it's going to be a thing to watch. I think we might see other armies getting like low-level powers and psychers who have options to replace Smite with other little tricks and cantrips. And we've had this previewed with the uh, the the um, Imperial Fist Codex that's coming out. So not quite, it's not quite out with us yet, but when it's coming up, they're supposed to have their own. Uh, kind of geomancy sort of uh, powers for their psychers, well, right? Yeah, so each of these Spazian supplements has a unique order to each of the chapters. So, like, the Salamander's Pyromancy, the Burpus Geomancy, um, the Raven Guard have Umbramancy, and so on. Right. Um, which means that you've got a big selection of powers now, because if you're a supplemental chapter you've now got options of the standard Space Marine law. So whatever that one is called, um, it's like you know, mighty heroes and stuff like that. You've also got access to the Phobos law that's seen from all the Phobos librarians, like the ones that's from Shadow Spear. So you've got yeah. like the sneaky stealth powers there, and then you have your chapter's power. So if you're a Imperial Fists librarian in Phobos armor, you can choose between. Vanilla marine powers, stealthy Phobos powers, or Imperial Fist Geomancy powers. So yeah, I think that's a really good option because it means that when you you're defining your force, you can define its character. But it also means when you're going up against Imperial uh, Fists, you don't exactly know what their psychers are going to have necessarily. You can't plan for every eventuality. You can't math hammer it out. You've got to see it on the table and take it as mm. it comes, uh, which is, is much more constructive to the storytelling from my perspective. Oh yeah, I completely agree. And I think that this is just another level of diversity for that. So I, I think seeing smite replacements is something we might see in other um, laws down the line and the I think it's going to be interesting. And if anywhere, we're going to see it in Psychic Awakening books. So yeah. definitely keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one. See what comes out in there. See what yeah. uh, particular forces get their, their lists covered in the next uh, Psychic Awakening. I've enjoyed this one so much. <laughs> and then the other sort of main thing that's in the book for my interest anyway, in particular, is the two theatres of war. 
uh, in here. Now, these essentially read to me a little bit like Battle Zones, but they have got this new title of Theatres of War, which I think is something that we're going to see more of throughout the future. Um, yeah, I think the, the difference here that we've got with the Theatres of War compared to Battle Zones is there aren't any stratagems associated with them, right? Yeah, these seem like almost what you would call like miniature um, Battle Zones, or I think they're ones that are a bit more tied to particular missions. So, for example... I can see why the Maiden World mission is tied to the so like heroes versus Sneshi Demons mission that's in this book. Um, the the Sky Strike mission actually includes a stratagem, like a mission stratagem, that's tied to the high altitude theater of war. Yes. So like that mission explicitly has this theater of war in mind when you're playing it, whereas in the previous releases of things like the Vigilus books and Chapter Approved, there haven't been... None of the battle zones have been explicitly tied to any of the missions. The idea is you could have played any of the missions with any of the battle zones. Yeah. Um, so I think this is intended to be a bit more... These are the theatres of war for these particular missions. But you can also use these universally if you want to try other missions with them. Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah. The idea of using some of these rules and taking the Maiden World sort of theatre of war and building up in uh, sort of an exile list, which mm. is not explicitly in here, but so, yeah, I'm sure you could you could find those enough options between the LR codices and what's in here to start building a quite a, a rational exodite list. Yeah, it's like I find that these two theatres of war have sort of almost opposite ends of the usefulness spectrum if that makes sense because yeah. the maiden world i think is very particular for certain armies and missions and a particular story that you're telling mm-hmm. so like we'll just run through it now the the maiden world has actually two rules um the first is vigor of the world spirit um at the end of your movement phase you can roll 1d6 for each non-vehicle unit from your army that is on the battlefield on a six plus, you can select one model in that unit to regain one plus wound. If there, if there is not a model in that unit that has lost any wounds, but any models from that unit have been destroyed, roll a d6 on a four plus, you can return one of those models to the battlefield with one wound remaining, placing it in a unit coherency. It can't be placed, it cannot be returned to the battlefield. So, you know, you're looking at, you roll a dice per unit on a six plus, a wounded guy gets a wound back. It's not exactly going to be game-breaking or massively influential in the game. But the reason why this is relevant is because the mission that's intended to play with this is one where you've got pure Eldari uh, character army. So suddenly if you're playing with a pure army of characters, actually each one of them every turn potentially getting a wound back on the 6+, plus is a lot more relevant in that game. And then in particular, the second rule, Unspoiled Paradise, is tied explicitly to our diary characters. So it would have no effect if you're not playing with at least one Eldar army, and in particular one that's going to have a good number of characters in it. So this rule is, when a vehicle model explodes, if there are any Eldari character models on the battlefield, randomly determine one of them and roll a d6. Adding one, if that vehicle model has the Eldari keyword. If that vehicle model is an Eldari building, add two to the result instead. 
Five plus, that character model was driven into a rage by the destruction visited upon the maiden. Add one to its strength and attacks characteristics until the end of the battle. Now, me personally, I think you could use this more as a universal rule for sort of like, what's the word? Um, I guess like righteous hatred or something. So yeah. in this case, it's meant to be Aldari who are getting pissed off at the fact that a maiden world is being defaced by war. So then it's characters of, you know, going flying into a bit of a rage and getting strength and attacks because of it when vehicles are exploding and, you know, causing craters and debris and ruination and all sorts. But I don't see why there isn't a reason why you couldn't say create a custom mission where you did this with like Black Templars who are getting pissed off at an Imperial city getting destroyed or Imperial statuary and, you know. Or the, Sisters of Battle characters getting uh, angry on a shrine world. Yeah, like Tremble stuff. I could, yeah. I could see, you could even have it flipped on reverse where you could see like Chaos characters are getting pissed off that their ritual sites have been destroyed. Yeah. yeah. You know. and, uh, and actually, the very same thing actually on the first rule one, the second one, the first one where you gain a, uh, a lost wound or you, or you get that medic effect of getting uh, uh, somebody back in a squad. <clears throat> you could actually twist that around. Instead of being a maiden world, you could, you could be a death world. Uh, where where the flora and fauna are attacking you every <laughs> turn, you, you, you potentially lose one. Yeah, six, right? Yeah, um, and that that would work quite well. Mm. That'd be quite thematic for Katachan Army, right, or, or something like that. So I have to say, I, I'm I'm genuinely a little bit conflicted on the maiden worlds because I knew that was something that was going to be rules for in this book, and I was hoping for something a bit more involved than that, like you know, talking about using the Eldar architecture and like the webway ports and the sort of like fauna and wildlife that you get on a maiden world and perhaps things more to do with like the exodites and the world spirit and stuff like that i was hoping for all that kind of stuff and it's kind of not really there so i'm a bit a little bit underwhelmed with the maiden world yeah that's one of the reasons this is about the only reference to maiden worlds really in the, in mm. the whole book it's nice to have a theater war for them but uh, yes i i always want more law <laughs> so but that said I actually really like the high altitude theater of war. I think it's a really fun one because this is basically, this is meant to represent battles like taking place in like the upper levels, of, like hive cities, like up in the spires yeah. or yeah. say on top of, um, like mighty command barges. Or you, you could even argue things like void battles on yeah. the like deck of a spaceship and stuff. Um, or. Um, they reference things like floating um, platforms in like gas giants or yeah. or even literally floating in the sea or something, you know, if you've got some important um, aircraft carrier or something, you know, or equivalent, this is like a big battleship. Because basically this is a battle zone where the like, there's like a six-inch border around the edge of the table that represents the drop-off, so yeah. the, the edge of the spire the um, the edge of the platform, whatever it is, you know, this high altitude battle zone that you're fighting on. And in the law of this book, it's meant to represent, it's meant to be used in the mission where uh, Craftworld Ulfway are basically um, attacking the upper spires of Imperial Worlds in order to kill off the planetary governors. 
So it's meant to be up right high up in the spires and high boards. So that's why these will be defensive platforms and like landing pads and strips. You've seen probably things in like artwork of Imperial Hives that'll have like landing platforms for right up high. And it's kind of that sort of thing, that way of high, high, upper hive access. So yeah. I think there's a, a lot of fun opportunities to play around with. But I know it's supposed to be 40k, but the thing it kind of reminded me of more than anything when I was first reading it is that part in one of the prequel Star Wars movies where they go to the cloners planet and they land on that, uh, the, the spaceship lands on the Oh, on Camino. Camino, that's the right word. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the sort that's of outside. Like, and then um, there's a battle outside with uh, Django Fett, right? Yes. Yeah, it, it's almost exactly that sort of like Obi Wan Django Fett style yeah. conflict where they're fighting on raised platforms out in hazardous weather and there's pitfalls all around them, that sort of idea. So that, but written large from like a 40k scale game, and the idea is that the 6 by 4 foot table you're playing on is meant to be one of these large open areas that's sort of hanging out in an abyss for whatever reason. Being open to the elements. Yeah, open to the elements. Be you like a cliff face up in the Arctic, top of hive spires or gas platforms or whatever. But basically, it's got a handful of rules that are really cool. Yeah. So yeah. the first one is open sky. Running along the edge of the battlefield is a six-inch area that represents open sky. Only models with the fly keyword can be set up in or move onto this area. If a model without the fly keyword is set up in or moves onto this area for any reason, it is immediately destroyed. The area of the battlefield that is not open sky is referred to as the platform. Now... I can imagine this being used in some of the Vigilus missions representing Harker Bullclaimer and his uh, like Raptor hosts who were attacking the Hive Spires. And I think this would be a brilliant mission to use for that because seeing Raptors, you know, like flying in from the flanks <laughs> and harassing Yeah, the I seem to remember. Really cool. yeah. yeah, it would be. It reminds me of also uh, having been to Warmer World recently, the large diorama where. Uh, there's uh, the guys with the jetpacks chasing each other around the sides of the spires and stuff. Yeah, and this yeah. is the sort of perfect scenario for that. Yep. The second rule is destabilized platform. When a vehicle model on the platform explodes, after resolving the effects, roll one dice for each unit that does not have the fly keyword and is within nine inches of the edge of the battlefield. Which you have to remember, six inches of that is the open Sky. air. So you're only looking at really three inches away from the edge of the platform. Add two to the result if the exploding vehicle was Titanic, which I love the idea of the big like Titans, <laughs> titans on top of these platform. platforms. I know you can get like your Imperial Knights and stuff, but still, like I love this yeah. idea of like a warhound trying to like balance on the edge of a side spire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, on a five plus. That unit suffers D6 mortal wounds as warriors tumble to their deaths or crash into railings. Mm-hmm. So yeah, basically, things exploding is going to cause people near the edges of this platform to potentially fall off and fall to their doom. Um, and then finally, gusting winds. At the start of the battle round, the player who has the first turn rolls 1D6. On a 1 to 4, high winds are blowing towards the battlefield edge corresponding to the result shown on the map below. So basically, your four edges, one, two, three, four. Um, in your movement phase, you can add six inches to the movement characteristics of any models from your army with the fly keyword. A model that has its movement characteristic increased in such a way it must finish any move it makes that phase 
closer to the table edge that the high winds are blowing towards than when they than when they started the move. So basically, you can use the like the wind to your advantage if you're flying. Yeah, you can. It gives you boost to movement, but yeah. if it's in effect, actually, you might not be able to move in the direction you want to. <laughs> True. You may be forced to move away from your enemy if it's, it's the wrong way. And, um, I could have and some interesting side effects that you don't entirely expect, depending on how the game goes and the exact results that come up. And I think it would be surprising how much taking a six-inch like area off the inside of your table edges all the way around will kind of make it a far, much more close-quarter game. Yeah. Because you're effectively losing... 12 inches lengthways so and 12 th- inches shortways. There's the three foot by five foot table then that most of the battle's taking place on. Yeah, basically, with then some flying units hanging around on the edges. And even then, if you're within three inches of that imaginary edge, that's where like the danger zone is. So realistically, you're losing six inches again in each direction. So yeah. it's actually a really sort of close quarter battle. And if you. Yeah. If you perhaps use some of the open war cards for some of those funky and unusual deployment zones, I think you could have some real fun with it. Like, I can imagine seeing one army that has no flying units starting on, like, a central deployment and one army that has entirely flying units or flying transports full of things deploying on the edges. And I think that'd be a really fun way to use this scenario. Yeah, and I found as I started using these battle zones that one of the one of the things that really makes a, a game interesting, more dynamic, and a lot of fun is is when you're constrained on table space. So that like the yeah. geothermal eruption one that I, I talked about a couple of podcasts ago, uh, really constrained the amount of space we had on the table, brought us much closer together, and made it a really quite a fun, intense game. And I can see this working in a very similar way. Completely, um, I think it's just a nice two little interesting theatres of war or battle zones, whatever you want to call them in this book. And I think it'd be nice to see some more in the future books and just slowly add to sort of back catalogue of all these cool gaming resources that exist to yep. really add to your games of 40k. Um, and that's sort of more or less it. Like I say, there's, if you want detailed understands of the rules, there's plenty of other podcasts and YouTubers that are all done like page-by-page breakdowns of the exact powers and all the craftable attributes and which ones are the best for match play and so on. But that's that's not what we're here for. We're here to talk, talk about um, just some of the, the really interesting things that just pique our interest to do with the narratives and the games of 40k and all sorts. So yeah, like if you're an Eldar player, I highly advise picking it up because it's basically all the little supplements you could imagine you might want for your Dark Eldar or your Eldar, all sort of in this one book. Yeah, yeah and I think if you want to play an Inari army, I think it's a must-have, really. Oh, yeah, it's basically, this is like Codex Inari as well. Yeah. So yeah. if you do want that, then definitely pick it up. So, yeah, I think that is basically everything from our sort of first look at the rules from... Uh, Phoenix Rising, and as I say, I plan next episode to have a look at the law in Phoenix Rising. So there's some interesting stuff going on in there, but we will have to wait till the next show to discuss that because we're already closing in on two hours now, and I would like us to 
at least talk about some of the news and new releases that have been coming out recently and some of the upcoming things for the new book two of the Psychic Awakening. So I think Especially would... since at this time we seem to be managing to record the podcast in a timely manner, you know, but just be able to talk about it, right? <laughs> exactly. So I think we will take a quick break and then we will come back with our news and new releases. Do you enjoy awesome narrative 40k games as much as we do? Do you wish there was more narrative play content online you could enjoy? Narrative Wargamer aims to be more than just a podcast. Our goal is to become a wider platform for narrative 40k content creation. Right now we are just starting out, but you can already find 40k articles and gaming posts on our website at narrativewargamer.wordpress.com. We also aim to develop the Narrative Wargamer YouTube channel with narrative battle reports, custom missions, expanded gameplay rules and much more. If you would like to see awesome content like this, then please support the show via the Narrative Wargamer Patreon page. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and expand our range of future content. You can support the show from as little as $2 a month and it really is the best way to show us you are enjoying our work and are excited to see more. With your support, Narrative Wargamer can become the number one provider of narrative player content from the Grimdark. And we are back with our news and new releases. Accompanying the Phoenix Rising book, there is also the new battle box for the Eldar versus Drukari in the Lord of the Phoenix. So, you Dave, you've actually picked this up yourself, haven't you? Yeah, I'm kind of glad my wife doesn't listen to this podcast, but (laughs) (laughs) I I did pick up the Blood of the Phoenix box set Mm. uh, because, uh, as I mentioned before, as I posted on the group, I've I've started painting some, uh, some, um, as I posted on the Facebook group, uh, How to One with Gamer Facebook group, I have uh, started painting some Eldar, and uh, I've always liked the... the, um, Hounding Banshees. I've I've got most of the... Aspect Warriors in the in the old metal, the Jez Goodwin Aspect Warriors from second edition, I guess they came out right. Um, but the 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 new Halloween Banshee set that, that comes in that box, uh, together with Jane Zar, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, I really wanted those models. I needed, I want needed, I needed, I didn't need. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted the box set because it contained the the Viper and the the. Uh, well, I found it funny that there's actually a good bit of lore to go along with this as well because. Obviously, so the Blood of the Phoenix battle box is all about like the duel and the hunt between Jainzar and Drazhar. I like Drazhar's trying to hunt down a Phoenix Lord to prove, and like you know, he's the greatest like warrior. He's as good as race. Race. Yeah, um, and I thought that was going to be more like the linchpin of the story and the law in Phoenix Rising, but actually, it's not. Yeah. It's almost like a side note. Yeah. But that said. The Blood of the Phoenix Battle Box has its own law that is all about that. And that's really cool. And I'm almost a little bit I was almost tempted to sort of get it just for that because I want to read the bit about the law between you know, the jewels between Razar and Jane Zar. But um you you've gone and done it. <laughs> you've got yourself it. So yeah. you know, if you're interested in learning more about the let's say the the hunt and the uh the climactic battle between the two of them then you should definitely consider picking it up. And also, it's basically start collecting Yanari is that box. Like, it's definitely one of the biggest, um, like, component boxes they've ever released. You get a lot of models in that box. 
And yep. it's almost like a starting force for Yanari because if you, if you just pluck out Dreshar, put him to one side, basically everything else is a Yanari force. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I certainly, I just, I, I kind of want to paint through some of these, these Eldar as well. I, my painting has become a bit more uh, eclectic in uh, covering a lot of the different things. Since uh, since we started recording this podcast, it's got me excited about 40k. Like I said, I'm painting Chaos for the first time now. I want to paint different types of Eldar. Um, I might even consider painting some Tau one day, who knows? Yeah. But uh, this is a really good way to get into expanding my Eldar for I still fancy getting myself a proper Farsight Enclave at some point in the future, but that's like far future because... Just got to pace ourselves, let's work through the Eldar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, basically the the Blood of the Phoenix is what you would call the actual like, new model releases to go alongside the Rising Phoenix book. Yeah. Um, so I'm guessing this is probably how they're going to do most of releases moving forward. There'll be the book with the rules for that like expansion, that supplement to the Psychic Awakening, and there will also be a battle box probably releasing alongside it that will include a pair of the major factions involved in that conflict. Yeah, it'd be nice to see that if they keep doing that. I think that that'll work really well because you don't have to buy into these battle boxes. You can um, you can just get the the codex if that's stuff that interesting. You've already got the forces, um, but if if you do want that, if you do want that to expand, it's um, it, it's a nice way. It's, it's very much like to to uh, starter army sets in one box with a with a little bit of a few extras in as well with the, the, the superheroes, uh, shall we call them of the uh, uh, James R and um, Trezor. But, you know, at time of recording, um, Blood of Phoenix is available now, I believe, to go pick up off the shelf. Whereas the other sort of like new releases this week is the third and final wave of the Space Marine release. So yes. right now they're just available for pre-order, but they go on sale this weekend is the yeah. new Infiltrators slash Incursors box set for the Space Marines, as well as the new Impulsor, so the the Hover Rhino. I know. Yeah, the Hover <laughs> Rhino we've been waiting many a year for, but it seems like it's finally, it's finally. gliding its way into stores next weekend. Um, and then we've also got the Imperial Fist and Salamander releases, so their supplements, their upgrade kits on their two special characters, Targaradon and Drax Agatone, who I did not know this, but apparently um, Adrax is actually he's been in the law before. Apparently he's the protagonist in the Salamander Black Library novels. Ah, okay. I've not um, read those, but, but that's interesting. Yeah, It's good to know he's already there. Yeah, well, apparently those books are him like pre-Primaris, because obviously they were written right. a good number of years ago, but apparently yes. they've taken him and made him a Primaris character for this release, which I think is really cool. I guess it'd be kind of like if they took um, Uriel Ventress from the Ultramarines books and if they did him as a Primaris character. Yeah. Um, so I yeah, that'd know be that. interesting if they did. I, I quite quite like it. It's expansion. I'm kind of... I was I mean, half hoping this might happen for... Um, uh, um, um, I nearly said Vogeldorn, and that's not what I mean. That's nah, Lysander. I mean... No, I mean the Crimson Fist chapter master. Pedro oh, Cantor. yeah, yeah, that's something that I think's a bit of a shame because the, yeah. the so the Crimson Fists they recently had basically a, a white dwarf army in the same way 
the yeah. the Inari recently had one, but they've been rolled into the Imperial Fist supplement. But interestingly, Black Templars haven't. They are not in there, despite the fact that they are a successor of the Imperial Fists. Yeah, I think we. I think with the. I mean, we're touching touching forward and other things that are coming out, but with the the phase two release of Psychic Awakening, that's named Faith and Fury, and I, mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether we're going to see some. I mean, I'm purely guessing here, but some of the things that have been hinted at on the uh, Warhammer community site indicate that, that Black Templars might be in there, which would make sense. Uh, yeah, sisters are in there as well. And so I see something like uh, like some of the chaos, uh, the fighty chaos things, world eaters, things like that in there too. Yeah, so we might as well touch on that now. And that is literally, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, but you know, in the past couple of days, they released the first sort of like teaser for the second book in the Psychic Awakening series, and it it seems that the name is going to be Faith and Fury. Now, they also had like a little animation on YouTube and stuff that featured um, the galactic map, like the 40k universe, and it started out with the area that the events of Phoenix Rising are occurring. This little animation included the faction symbols for the Eldari, the Drukari, and the Inari, which are all the forces that are represented in the psychic in the Phoenix Rising book. Then it panned over to um, the new area of space where the second book in the series is going to be taking place, which interestingly is it's sort of located in between a few areas of note. Um, it's just below the Eye of Terror, Vigilus, and just west of Armageddon. So actually there's quite a few you know, significant places nearby. Um, and this little animation showed a bunch of new faction symbols that presumably will be the focus of the second book. And um, I've got them all written down here, and it's interesting. Basically, it looks like it's an Imperial versus Chaos conflict, the book two, um, because the uh, the Imperial forces involved that it listed were um, the Adaptus Sororitas, so Citizen Al, which would make sense if this book is going to come out somewhere roughly online with their yeah. uh, battle box release, but their they're like their army box release, and presumably their codex. Um, the Astromotarum was in there, yeah. but again, that could be something as defined as like God. it could just be Cadians, or it could be a bit more yeah. extended. God, how everywhere. They're even yeah. mentioned in Phoenix Rising 1. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is, and then there was also a few spacing chapters that were featured, which included the Salamanders, the White Scars, and the Black Templars. Which, well, you assume it was the Black Templars because the White Templars do have the same symbol. Yeah, but then so do the Red Templars. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so it seems like the Black Templars are going to feature, and they were kind of like the most prominently featured chapter symbol within this little, you know, YouTube animation. They did emphasize that. Right? And yeah. Of course, we're not going to see anything for Salamanders or White Scars. That's already released, right? Well, I'm guessing it might be that you get perhaps some vigil style formations or maybe just some extra relics or psychic laws or something related to them. Because it seems odd for them to be included there and them to not get a shout out in the rules, if that makes sense. You know, it, it who knows? But, yeah. 
what I'm suspecting is that because we've not seen the Black Templars in supplement Imperial Fists, I'm wondering if we're going to get the Black Templars mini decks in this book. So in the same way that the Yanari are in Phoenix Rising, I'm wondering whether or not the Black Templars will be in Faith and Fury. Yeah, and they are sufficiently differently organised to, to justify mm. that. And you, you see that in the background of the law all the time. You look back to something like um, uh, War of the Beast uh, series, that, that contention between between the last Imperial Fist and, and the way the Black Templars want to turn something, uh, run, run their campaigns and how they're organised. Uh, I think there's a, there's a clear gap of organisational structure between the Fists and the Black Templars that uh, would justify their own mini-decks. And then the non-imperial forces that were shown were all chaos ones and they were all the very, basically the majority of the chaos legions so it included the iron warriors the night lords the alpha legion the word bearers the emperor's children and the world eaters which i think is a very interesting selection because that essentially is all of the core chaos legions that exist in the Chaos Codex. So notably absent are the Death Guard and the Thousand Sons, who but, both have their own codexes. And the only other one is the Black Legion. But also I could see them having um like a larger part to play and be defined by themselves. I mean, they've almost got their own mini decks in uh, the Vigilus books in Vigilus Ablaze. So, you know, they already have their own unique relics and warlord traits and stuff outside of the Chaos Codex. Yeah, I very much welcome to our mini decks, given that, especially mm. given what I've been painting tonight. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that basically it looks like they're setting up Faith and Fury to be um, probably the supplement for all the Chaos Forces, like for the Chaos Legions. So, you know, we got ourselves like a, a, a Runes of Fortune, a Crackle Attributes, stuff like that. Maybe you'll get warband attributes. So you might be able to have different attributes for different world eaters, different attributes for different iron warriors, stuff like that. There'll be a whole bunch of things in here probably related to each of the legions and possibly the warbands that they're tied to. Um, but what I'm almost expecting at this point is that Faith and Fury is either the name of the book or it's the name of the new battle box. Because if, if Faith and Fury was the battle box, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Black Templars versus one of these Chaos Forces. Yeah, World Eater, something like that. Yeah. Could you imagine that if Faith and Fury was, here is your new Primaris Black Templar models, led by like a new Primaris Cap uh, Chaplain Grimaldus, yeah. you know, versus... Here is the new World Eater kit led by Khan. It doesn't even need to be a new Khan. Just use the current Khan model because the new current Khan is a relatively new sculpt. Yeah, yeah I think that would go down well. That'd be really quite uh, quite a nice box set. Uh, the, the, the Especially when you imagine that, you know, popular. it's basically the, the Chaos like <laughs> Berserkers versus the Imperial Zealots. Like, yeah. I just think that'd be a really fun game to play out. Yeah, there's there's a couple of a couple of surprises. I, I was kind of half expecting with the the concept of faith and fury. I, I was I'm surprised not to see something around uh, Order Hereticus on the Imperial side. Um, maybe half expecting, but maybe that's covered by the sisters. Um, yeah, and 
I, I think the, the aspect of faith, I think it's good to focus more on the Black Temples than it is on the Sisters. I think it's interesting that they are apparently going to be featured in this book, but I think that's probably just more going to be to coincide with their model range release and are not actually going to be like the feature army of Faith and Fury because I think just by virtue of them getting their new model range is going to be enough for them whereas it allows them the opportunity to do something with the temples um, so yeah like I'm really looking forward to it to see what it is and to be honest I'm also kind of interested to see what they're going to do with some of the Chaos Legions like I'd like to yeah. see more in-depth stuff on the World Eaters I'd like to see more in-depth stuff on the Empress Children yeah, the two the two on the chaos side that uh, took me by surprise a little bit. I think again, around if we're focusing on the concepts of faith and fury, obviously Wilbur is working there, World Eaters working there, uh, even Emperor's Children, Nine mm-hmm. Lords, but Alpha Legion and Iron Warriors don't seem to fit either of those uh, those concepts quite as strongly as the others do. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how they're included or in what way they're included. If it wasn't for the fact that I'd almost put money on expecting to see a new World Eaters kit or like Con Berserker's kit, yeah. I could imagine that Faith and Fury would have been a battle box between the Black Templars and the Word Bearers mm. because you could argue that they're both faithful and furiesome. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, you wouldn't see it as like, oh yeah, the Black Templars are the Faith and the World Eaters are the Fury. You could see it as like, the box set is Faith and Fury and it could easily be interchangeable. You don't know who's the Faithful in this scenario and who's the, uh, the Furious because it's yeah. the Word Bearers and the Black Templars could be either or, you know. Uh, yeah, Fe- yeah. Like Blood of the Phoenix played on that fact that they're both Phoenix Lords. We don't know whose blood gets spilled. Well, that's true. That's true. both the Black Templars and both the Word Bearers are both Zealots. Whose faith is it? <laughs> um, but yeah, like, <laughs> it's funny how I've only really just got Phoenix Rising in my hands this week, and yet I'm already really excited for Faith and Fury. <laughs> yeah, better keep saving up all the way up to Christmas, I think. Uh, yeah. You should send that to everybody. It looks like I'm going to be spending some pennies on 40k books. But it's not a bad thing. And, you know, having so many resources and new toys to play around with can only be a good thing. Yep. So, with that in mind, I think we will move on very swiftly to our community spotlight before we head out the door. Um, so, Dave, have you got anything you want to particularly highlight to talk about this week? Yeah, just a small odd one. Normally we talk about uh, different community members, but I, I want to say Games Workshop this time. Uh, not Games Workshop in general, because uh, that's what we're talking about across the whole podcast, really. But very specifically, one thing that I've done that I like, which is the new little A5 format rulebook, uh, which I've got my hands on recently. Now, it does have one major oddity, perhaps you might say let down, uh, which is that it is just a reprinting of the original rules. So they've gone to the effort of reprinting the A5 rules without any of the facts or corrections in. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't check before we started, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I got you to check up things like the yeah. smite rule and the command points for detachments and stuff. And unfortunately, but, it turns out that they have not bothered to include any of the updates or erratas. But I'm sure there's a no. reason for it, but it does seem a little odd to me. 
it, it is quite, uh, it is a bit odd having, having realised that. However, I, I love the A5 format. It's so much more convenient to take to games. It's sort of the same size as taking my iPad, uh, which I, I do take and use uh, when I'm playing games quite often. Uh, but it's just, uh, it's just a lot more handy. I, I really love the A5 format. I'm it's really just a life hack, really, games, isn't it? Yeah, it's taken them so long to put this out because the the last couple of editions before this, uh, 7th and 6th, they've been, I can see my 6th edition, uh, A5 book from where I'm sat right now in my hobby room. Um, they're fantastic little, little, you need the core rules, you need to look up that stuff quite regularly. It's got the missions in it, it's got all that kind of stuff, detachments, uh, although the points on the, the command points on the detachments are wrong as well, of course, because that's been fact. Um, but it's got all that stuff in, the Planet Strike City, they're strong on the salt you know, all the missions, uh, everything you need in a small format. So props to Games Workshop on that one. I mean, yeah, I, I might be tempted to pick one up anyway, like you see at some point, just because it'll be a helpful commodity to have. But, um, I mean, I think that'd be interesting to hear what some of our listeners think as well, what format they prefer. Yeah. Probably like, you know, the full original A4 book with all the lore in it, or the quite fancy a small A5 one, or even if, some people these days just prefer having the digital formats and digital ranges because I don't know, but I think they get FAQ updates and adjustments. Maybe someone out there can tell me. Maybe I should pick up my iPod after this and uh, no. find out. But also, if anybody thinks I'm wrong, if you think uh, I'm completely off the mark and the Bay 5 rulebook is a complete waste of time, you know, tell us that as well. It's interesting mm-hmm. to know what people think. Um. And then my community shout out this week is actually a sort of like a website and a, an article site. It is goonhammer.com. So this, this is, is not to do with Arsenal, is it? No. <laughs> uh, so this is actually the like 40k. I don't know what you call them really because it's not a blog. It's kind of like it's just a. It's a content site. Yeah, it's a content site. Yeah, that's that's the best word for it. Yeah. And it's brilliant. I've been really enjoying it because, you know, I've, I've looked at some of the sort of like, I guess, the main ones in the past, you know, things like Bella Lost or Spiky Bits, all the rest of it, you know, and I still find them a bit samey and clickbaity eventually, you know, and, um, that I've just not found that's the case with Goonhammer. So I originally, um, discovered it through the 40k podcast because the guys that do that show, they're, you know, some of the contributors and the, one of the guys is actually currently doing a weekly Necromunda, uh, article on Goonhammer. Um, and they're really good. I've been really enjoying them. Um, and it was through him and the podcast and seeing the Necromunda posts in the Chronicles Facebook page that I discovered, like, Goonhammer as a whole, and I started delving into some of more of their articles, and I've been really enjoying the sort of stuff they've been putting up. There's, there's certainly a good bit of like, you know, tournament results and meta uh, discussions and gameplay tactics and all the usual sort of articles you see on these sort of places. There's plenty of that content if that's what you enjoy, but I've also been really enjoying the more esoteric stuff they put out there. Like they have, um, a series called the Narrative Forge, which is where the it's a series of articles designed for looking at like the hobby and the sort of, sort of things you can do with it on a a larger scale outside of just gameplay and stuff. So, like the past couple of weeks, they had an article on displaying your armies, so like you know how you go about building display cases and some of the tips and tricks that they've 
their contributors have found over the years. Um, there was one article the other week about how one of the guys had built his own like storage, storable, collapsible six by four cities of death board. Like, you know, and how over the years he's built his own like imperial sector board, um, and how to go about doing that. This week's article was making display boards for your armies. So like a, like a display tray and stuff like that. Like, so when you see people at uh, big events and things and they've got the, the 2000 point army on like, um, a really nice custom made display board. And it's not like an army on parade board as such, but just a, a transportable board. Yeah. But still some really nice time and effort put into it and stuff like that. And I've been really enjoying those. Yeah, it was good. I'll have to look up good and properly. I, uh, I saw it in the show notes, but I've not really had time to, to read it, so it sounds very interesting. Well, um, that's where I actually saw one of your fellow Rainbow Warrior uh, oh, contributors right. on there, because um, it was one of the event coverages that he was doing, and he'd been to an event with his own Rainbow Warriors, and I just had to show you them because they were really nice, <laughs> and I thought you'd enjoy yeah, any were. sort of Rainbow Warrior content. Indeed, there's not so much of us out there, but it's uh, mm-hmm. it's good to see. I appreciate it. But yeah, I highly recommend it. Like, if you enjoy your 40k articles and your 40k content, and you're looking for something that's got um, basically lots of perspectives and lots of different things in the hobby to look at and read about, I'd highly advise looking at Gutenhammer.com. And I think that is everything from us tonight, isn't it, Dave? Anything else you want yeah. to mention or bring up on the way out? Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered everything we plan to talk about. It's just been good uh, talking again with you on the podcast, Tony. Awesome. It has. Like, I think it's been an, a very nice first look at a, a new sort of product, and it's one of our firsts. And um, oh, I nearly forgot in our announcements. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it nearly what got away from me, but we forgot. We actually have just passed the one thousand lifetime downloads of the show. Excellent. So, Super yay. Super yeah, indeed. And I want to say a big thank you to all you listeners out there, especially those of you that have made it to this part of the show and gone right to the end and listened to all our ramblings. But yeah, we're on, well, at time of recording, there are eight episodes of the podcast live and we've just picked over a thousand lifetime downloads. So, you know, we're averaging over a hundred downloads per episode at this point, which is amazing. Um, I think the podcast only started back in June. So I'm really pleased with that. Um, and I'm looking forward to it growing more in the future. So clearly people are enjoying it. People are spreading the word and the more you do that, the better. So wherever you're listening to this, you know, please do give it a like, give us a five star review, whatever, or whatever review you feel is appropriate. You know, let people know about us, leave comments. It's all the sort of things that helps other people discover the show because it really is how you know these platforms do their algorithms and stuff and start promoting things to other listeners out there that think they might enjoy our show um, and just word of mouth tell your friends and, and, and reach out to us we really appreciate everybody listening to us uh, but you know uh, we, mm-hmm. we mention them quite frequently throughout the show the Facebook Narrative Wargamer group at Narrative40k on Twitter is, is the account that you run right Tony and on, I think we're on Instagram as well yeah, is it? You can find us say a narrative forty k on Twitter and narrative wargamer on Instagram. Um, and yeah, like we we got a 
uh, our first sort of comment and review on Podbean the other day as well, which is a very positive one. Um, I forget his name and I'll have to bring it up at some point and thank him. But this fellow was really enjoying the show. He liked the format that we were currently using and uh, he enjoyed having somewhere to listen to sort of like narrative play talk because that's how he also enjoys playing the most. So, And he told us to keep up the good work. So we will. Yeah, we'll keep uh, we'll keep talking to each other in our strong Yorkshire accents and keep yeah uh, podcasting. <laughs> so uh, thank you all very much for listening out there. And uh, I have to say, usually within twenty four hours of the show going live, there's usually been at least fifty or so plus downloads. So there's certainly a bunch of you out there that are looking forward to each episode, and uh, I, I couldn't thank you enough. Like it's been really encouraging to see the feedback and see how much people are enjoying it. And we, we, we want to keep doing it and uh, really developing the community and hearing from you all really helps reinforce that. So thank you very much for that. Indeed. And, and, and thank you to Fudges883. I've just looked him up on Podbeam. And that's, that's the name of the guy that left those comments. So thank ah, you very much for those. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, thanks again for that, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show. And, you know, we will see you next time. And until then, discover more ways to play in your games of 40k. Bye.